I have to say, I mean, I think John should be on the parliamentary group, which advises the government. I'm being completely serious. You need to be on the parliamentary group, which advises the government on matters around mental health and mental disorder. It's no good being up in Aberdeen in a university. <laughs> it's, it's just not going to work. You know, there's very... I can say, having experience in mental health, this type of voice is rare. Seriously rare. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Welcome to a very special edition of The Profile podcast. This week's episode was recorded live at Spring Harvest. My colleague Justin Briley was there to meet and interview Professor John Swinton. You'll hear that conversation plus the audience Q&A as well coming up on this special edition of the show. This podcast is brought to you by Premier Christianity Magazine, the UK's leading Christian mag. And we were at Spring Harvest. If you were there, you would have been handed a free copy. And if you're not yet a subscriber, now is the perfect time to change that because we are running a half-price offer right now. Get the magazine delivered direct to your door, full of Christian news, analysis, columnists, reviews, features, and so much more. Get it half-price. Just go to premierchristianity.com. And if you're listening to this from outside of the UK, we have some offers for you as well. Wherever you are in the world, you can get a digital subscription to Premier Christianity magazine. So head to the website now. That's premierchristianity.com. Let's listen in now to Justin Briley in conversation with Professor John Swinton. You're listening to The Profile. Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you here. Thank you for coming out to the marquee. I got a bit lost because it's been a few years since I've been at Spring Harvest, and the marquee used to be over where now Studio 36 is. And I naturally went in that direction until I realized it was definitely not there. And it's, in fact, the entire other side of the site over here. So uh, well done for finding it sooner than I did. Um, I'm Justin Briley, and uh, it's, it's lovely to be able to welcome to the stage John Swinton. Do come up, John. And uh, yes, give, give John a round of applause, because uh, obviously, I imagine most of you have been uh, enjoying John's Bible teaching each morning here at Spring Harvest this week. But uh, we're doing something a bit different for this session. I'm going to be interviewing John, and interviewing him for a radio show and podcast called The Profile. It broadcasts on Premier Christian Radio every Saturday evening at 8pm, and you can also find it as a podcast as well. It's produced in partnership with Premier Christianity Magazine, and hopefully you got your copy of Christianity Magazine at one of the venues earlier in the week. Um, but what's lovely is, because this is a live edition of The Profile, um, we'll be able to take some questions as well. So do be thinking of questions, and we'll give about 20 minutes or so towards the end, for, where you can grill John with the questions you want to ask him as well. Um, but why don't you give another warm round of applause for John Swinton, and we'll get seated. John, welcome. It's very nice to be here. Um, You've got to imagine that not only are you speaking to these wonderful people here at the Marquee in Spring Harvest, but 
an entire radio audience as well across the, the UK. But what would be lovely is to signal that we're all here. So can we get a big minehead cheer from our audience here in the marquee? There you go. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you, John. Um, you're my special guest today for a live audience edition of The Profile. Um, you've been leading the Bible teaching here in Minehead at Spring Harvest. Um, let me just give a quick bio for those who aren't familiar with John. John is Professor in Practical Theology and Pastoral Care and Chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the University of Aberdeen. He's also a minister in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, and for more than a decade he's worked as a nurse with people with mental health challenges and learning disabilities, and also as a hospital and community mental health chaplain. Um, and before we dig into your story, John, tell us how's it been going? We're near the end of the week now here at Spring Harvest. What have you been bringing from the Bible, especially as regards the theme of this week, flipped, living in the upside-down kingdom? What we've been uh, focusing on is... Um just showing the way in which, uh, particularly the Beatitudes, help us to reframe the world. But so we, we live in a culture where power and vitality and youth are really, really important. But then you look at the Beatitudes, you look at the, the things that Jesus is saying, you look at the people he's saying them to, and you suddenly realize that many of the things that we assume are normal are not normal. And so we've been exploring various issues around that over the week. Fantastic. Um, what we always do on the profile radio show and podcast, John, is go right back to the beginning of someone's life. Uh, we love to explore the stories of what brought you to where you are. So tell us about life growing up. I believe you were a child of the manse, as it were, uh, in, the, in the Church of Scotland, at least. I was a child of the manse, right? But they, uh, they say that man's children and policemen's children are the most rebellious, right? Because you've got a lot to live down at school. Like, my, my dad was the minister of the local congregation, and my mother was a teacher in the same school as I was in. It was, you know, you can understand. <laughs> you, see, you see the problem, right? And so, yeah, I was a child of the manse, and I, I did spend my early days in and around church. But I never really, I never really got it. And the reason for that is because... I found it really boring, so I would speak to my friends, and so therefore, when I went back home, I used to get into trouble. So I was programmed to, to associate boredom and scolding with church. Like, so be very careful the way in which you uh, introduce your children to church, because you can program them to be you. And it wasn't really until I was in my early 20s when I, uh, I was working at a hospital just 40 years, 40 years, 40 miles up the road. And I, I had had a kind of wild night in town with some friends that lived in a little place called Port Soy, which is up the coast. Um, and I went to work in the hospital just outside there. And I thought we're going to have another wild night, but this time in Port Soy. And it turned out that in the three months since we had this wild night, they'd all become Christians. Wow. So, <laughs> so they all had kind of Bibles under their arms. And uh, I didn't have a Bible, but I was quite struck by that. So one of them had to give me a Bible. And so and that was the beginning of my, my Christian journey. So in other words, I knew all the theory because I'd mm -hmm. been around the church, but it wasn't until I saw the transformation that I thought there's something really important right. happening there. And, and that kind of 
was more influenced by your peer group than by your father, in a sense, would you say? Because I guess you can almost become inoculated to church if you've been around it from a very young age. And sometimes you need someone from the outside of that to suddenly wake you up to something. Exactly. Yeah. And so rather than it being routine or something that you had to do, it suddenly becomes something that brought about transformation, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you don't mind me asking about your own ethnicity as well, John, because I, I don't know, as a, as a young black man living in Scotland, was that different? Was that unusual? Was that in any way an issue at, at that time? Well, strange, people do ask me that, and strangely enough, it never really was. And the reason, when all the schools I went to, both primary school and secondary school, I was, for the most part, the only black person in the school. Now, you might think, oh, that's terrible, you must have got horrible bullying, but I never got, I never, I don't have any memories okay. of being bullied at all. Uh, and I certainly, there was nobody, I wasn't a threat to anybody, like, so I wasn't taken over the, the, the city on my own. <laughs> <laughs> And so my, my experiences, uh, my personal experiences, were always quite positive, well, actually very positive, right? Having said that, uh, it's very clear to me, I'm on the, um, uh, the uh, equalities group in, in, the, in the Church of Scotland just now. And it's very clear that Scotland as a, as a country, like UK as a, as a country, uh, racism is a significant issue. And so I don't, in a sense, try to downplay it. Sure. It just wasn't part, a strong part of my history. Mm. Mm. Did you ever envisage yourself go treading in your father's footsteps and becoming a Church of Scotland minister at the young age that you were? Oh, not when I was young, no. <laughs> but, uh, but it's funny because my, my dad, well, the reason we ended up in Aberdeen was because my dad uh, took a job as a hospital chaplain. Mm. And so when I left nursing and went into, uh, to do my theology degree, I, I had assumed that I would end up in chaplaincy. Um, not because chaplaincy is genetic, it's just because chaplaincy is, is the thing that's been running in our mm. family. Mm. Um, uh, and I did work in chaplaincy for a while, but as soon as I started university, I knew what I wanted to do, and, which was to, to teach practical theology. Yeah. yeah. What led to the role of nurse, especially in the area of mental health and learning disabilities? What, what, what led you down that particular path? Yeah, well, that's a really disappointing story, really, <laughs> I think. Because, like, so when I left school... Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and so I took a job as a, a marine scientist. Uh, now, a marine scientist that's useless with statistics is not great. Like, <laughs> so I did that for a year. The maths a, wasn't your strong point uh, then. No, it wasn't my strong point. I don't know why I did it. Well, I know why I did it, because my mother forced me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mother. The, uh, uh, and so I didn't know what to do. So I left that job, and I drove a van for a while, and I really liked that, because... It, you know, just to get paid to drive around beautiful northeast Scotland's countryside and, mm. and deliver stuff was great. And you can go at night and you don't have to worry about anything, you just have to do your thing, it's great. But I couldn't do it forever. <laughs> and so my, my friend, David Adams, uh, decided to be a nurse, right? And uh, so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll be a nurse. And that was it. There you go. Just stumbling there around. was no great vision from the sky. It was just no. my best friend's gone my off and done this. My life is one stumbling from one thing to the next, <laughs> hoping for the best. <laughs> Less so nowadays, I suppose. Uh, so when you started, uh, what was that experience like? Obviously, most people, sadly, associate nursing as a female profession, but obviously you were going in. Uh, and why that particular area of nursing, mental health challenges and so on? Yeah, and you're right. I mean, one of the funny things... Um, that people oftentimes would say to me would be, uh, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm a nurse. And they'd say, oh, a male nurse. 
Yeah. <laughs> Just checking. Just checking. <laughs> I, well, I, I did stumble into it, but I, I know that as soon as I, I got into nursing, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed mental health. I, I thought it was fascinating to spend time with people who see the world differently. And mm. Spend time with people who just don't focus on things in the way that you do. People who are hearing voices and who are have deep religious faith, people who are going through the depths of depression or the elation of bipolar disorder, you begin to see that this, this kind of narrow way in which you thought the world was is just not the way the world is. Mm. So it expanded my horizons. And, and for me, <clears throat> it was a very formative period in my, my, all of my nursing. Mm. And, and in relation to what comes later in, in my life, that, that formation was fundamentally important because a lot of the theological questions that I work with as a theologian and continue to work with emerged from that. You know, mm. Questions like, what does it mean to, to know Jesus when you've forgotten who Jesus is? Or what does it mean to know God when you never have the intellectual ability to do that? Yeah. So these big questions yeah. are, are, form, are formative. And, and I suppose that segued into your role ultimately as a community mental health chaplain. So did that come after you decided to go down the ordination route and, and to pursue that? And, right. and, and what was the difference there from moving, as it were, more from that specifically NHS medical side to this community chaplain sort of role? Well, the, um, when I left nursing, I began to study theology. And my intention then was to be a hospital chaplain. Mm. Uh, and so as it, the way that it ran was that I got a part-time job as a community mental health chaplain alongside of doing my PhD. So I was doing my PhD on the role of schizophrenia, uh, uh, or role of Christian friendship in uh, the lives of people with schizophrenia, and looking at the way in which a particularly highly stigmatized uh, mental health challenge can be uh, uh, understood very differently in, in relation to Christ-like friendships mm. and, and different way of thinking about community. And in my chaplaincy work, that was exactly what I was called to do. So I was working with people who had been in long-term care, uh, and sometimes for you know, 30, 40 years, who were moving from the uh, hospital into the community and my job was to help them to find a, a spiritual home right and the first thing you, you notice is that although at that time the, this, the uh, policy was called community care there wasn't really a community that cared right particularly for people who are different so life outside of the community was very difficult for some people uh, many people but sadly life inside churches for people who are perceived to be different wasn't much different. Mm. And so my job was to help a, help people to find a good, solid, safe community, but also to help communities to understand the nature of mental health and to understand that in relation to what they're trying to do as uh, Christ-like communities. I haven't very often heard of the theology of friendship, but that was really what you were looking into and researching, wasn't it, for your For PhD, my PhD, it yeah. was, yeah. Well, could you open that up a bit and talk about what, what that involves? Because... We often hear about, you know, the theology of salvation, the theology of atonement, the theology of this, that, and the other. We don't often hear about the theology of friendship. So, so what were some of the core ideas in, in your work there? Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about the theology of anything, it, it really means how do you understand God and human beings in relation to this particular thing, mm. whatever that is. And so how do you understand God and human beings in relation to friendship is, 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 is what I was looking at in that sense. So... Um, 
I began by thinking about how we normally construct our, our friendships. And the, the, idea, the whole idea, and I spoke about this during the week, the idea that when you look around your circle of friends, they kind of look like yourself. You have very similar ways of looking at things, and very similar interests, and so on and so forth. Which is great for you and your friends, but for somebody who's trying to break into that, that circle who's different, you're not, you're not going to find a space. Mm. And so you have groups of people who are uh, really uh, similar uh, but exclusive for people who are, uh, are different. And then I looked at the, the, the friendships of Jesus, which worked on a completely different principle, because pretty much everybody that Jesus was friendly with, be that fishermen, poor people, prostitutes, sinners, whatever it is, were not like him in that sense. And certainly mm. the, the powerful and, and uh, establishment of the day clearly thought they were not like them. Mm. But that's the kind of friendship, that's the kind of hospitality that Jesus offered to them. And most importantly, in relation to the hospitality that Jesus offered to people, was the movement from guest to host. Right? Mm. So very often, particularly for people who live with mental health challenges, very often the assumption is that you are always hosting people. right? So you've got to look after this person, you've got to care for them. Nothing wrong with that, everybody mm. wants better. But the idea that you're getting something back, yeah. the idea that you're learning something from their experience, that you're, ho you're being a guest in their life and a guest in their, their home is something that is kind of countercultural to the way in which we oftentimes think about how we respond to, to human difference. So the hospitality and friendships of Jesus teaches us something very profound about the kind of community that we, we should become. Yes, because I think, I think, I suppose, and that's very different as well to perhaps what is often the case in the medical side of things that people are clients and service providers they are you know the medical professional and the patient whereas you're you want to i suppose try and encourage a situation in which you're talking about a friendship a family a, a genuine reciprocity between the two sides what what were you seeing practically on that front i mean that must have been a really challenging thing because i guess you had to overcome a lot of the natural stigma that is attached to issues around mental health, whether they be outside or inside the church. How, what kind of stories did you see? Was there anything that gave you real hope that actually the church can be this countercultural place where people have friendships across all of the different divides that normally divide people? Yeah, well, there's pluses and there's minuses. It's like mm. anything else. My, my, my job was to be, if you like, a culture broker, to accompany somebody into a different culture and to help that culture to understand the nature of that difference. So my, the first stage, and this is quite a difficult thing in some senses in, in a professional context, was to offer friendship to the individual. Mm. And then for, me, for that friendship to be a catalyst for friendship within uh, particular communities. Um, and you know, very often that, that did work. So I think of one young man I worked with, his name was, was Tony. And he, um, one of the most profound things he said to me was that, at that time he said, I'm 24 years old and I've never had a friend that hasn't been paid to be my friend. Right. Mm. And I thought that was really mm. profound. And he was somebody, he was a deeply committed Christian, but that really troubled him. Like. Mm. And so my job with Tony, who was, you know, quite, um, uh, at points quite significantly ill, my, point, my task with him was to help him to find friends that weren't paid friends, which meant sitting with him in the community, in the community and meant being a safe place for him as he experienced the friendships with other people and allowing the community to build around him. And he, uh, I remember he went to one community for, he probably, he probably went there for about four years. 
And the community really opened up to him. The, the men took him to football. He, he played uh, golf. He did all sorts of things. And he really felt that was a great place. And then he left. Mm. Uh, and nobody ever saw him again. Right. Like. Uh, and that was a great sense of grief for the congregation because they felt they hadn't done, or they'd done something wrong. But they hadn't. They'd done everything mm. right. Uh, and it's just the nature of, of Tony and the nature of Tony's condition that sometimes mm. he just doesn't want to be there anymore. But that safe... Uh, formative space for him, he'll carry that with him later. Yeah. And so one of the things that I learned is that uh, sometimes things that look like failures are actually just steps along a journey. And churches often have a sign outside and like to pride themselves on the idea that we are welcoming, we're a welcoming place. But I guess frequently we're unaware of the kinds of barriers we put up unwittingly to people who are different perhaps to us, who yeah. don't have the same dress code or habits and especially I suppose in the kind of typical church service that there is a certain way of doing things that's often understood yeah. and and when people come in with I don't know neurodivergent kind of uh, needs or whatever it can actually be quite difficult I think sometimes yeah. for a church to understand how to welcome and include people um, who, who perhaps they haven't had an opportunity to do with that before how do you address those kinds of issues as, as you do have introduced and if you like been a matchmaker if you like between people to kind of create these welcoming communities where these genuine friendships occur what kind of advice are you giving to the church to to, to be able to do that effectively well there's a few things i would say there one would be um we need to kind of rethink our understanding of of holiness and peacefulness mm. right so i often think you know, uh, the birth of Jesus, right? One of the most holy moments in the history of, of the world. Like, and it's just mayhem. There's, there's, there's angels and there's animals. There's everything else that's gone there. And yet, in that center, in the midst of that chaos, Jesus is there. God mm. is redeeming the world. Right? And so, um, when it comes to dealing with people who may be disruptive to the way that we're, we think is norm, Think about that as a scenario that maybe we, do, we have to rethink the possibility that we need to be flexible in order that, people can come, that the holiness of God can come in, mm. in in the midst of that, these, these kind of situations. Second thing is, I think that we need to listen very carefully to the experiences of people with mental health challenges, disability, autism. I went to a, a, a church in Vancouver a few years ago, and they have a, they have a preaching team and um, the way that it runs is that uh, every week, whoever's preaching on the Sunday has to preach their sermon to the preaching team. Mm. <clears throat> and then the team gives feedback, and so on the Sunday morning, it's this fantastic sermon. It should be in, <laughs> in principle. Anyway. What they're thinking of doing, or what they are going to do, is include people with disabilities and people with mental health challenges in that discernment team, mm. so that they... Uh, anything within the sermon that's problematic or tricky or, or exclusive can be brought to the fore early on. And that, so when, you're, when the sermon is preached on the Sunday morning, it's preached in the knowledge of the great diversity of people that the body of Christ comprises of. And I think that's, that's really helpful because it sensitizes you to the reality that the body of Christ is filled with diversity. Mm. And that if we're going to really communicate as a community, we need to respect that diversity and listen to these different voices. That's a really helpful suggestion. And when it comes to Christians themselves at an individual level, kind of getting out of their bubbles, because we're all guilty, I think, of 
flocking to people who are similar to us and, and we think that we're very open to others. But when we look around our circle of friends, we probably find actually they pretty much look and sound rather like us. How do, how do we do that Jesus thing? Who, who seemed to be able to, you know, he literally got called a friend of sinners, a friend of prostitutes, a friend of tax collectors, all these people he shouldn't have been around and yet seemed to manage to have these wonderful relationships with. How do we in any way try to model that in our own lives? Well, it's funny because, um, you know, we do, I've done quite a lot of research on church and disability over the years. And one of the things I hear time and time again from churches is, yeah, this is just fantastic ideas of inclusion, etc. Um, but we don't actually have anybody with disabilities <laughs> here. But if we had them, we would. And you have to wonder, well, why don't you have mm. them? And so because it's not on people's agenda in the right way, the contact's not made. So there's lots mm. of ways in which you could encourage people to come mm. to your, your mm. congregation. And I think the fundamental flaw is this. Well, I think it's mm. like I'm speaking as if I'm <laughs> authority. But this is what I think. Um, churches tend to think about issues around mental health and, and uh, disability in terms of pastoral care, right? Mm. So somebody is unwell or has whatsoever, so we need to care for them. Nothing mm. wrong with pastoral care. Mm. Everybody needs pastoral care. Um, but I think a better frame to put it in is discipleship. What does it mean to live with schizophrenia, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and to have a vocation and a calling to do something just as you are? That's a much more difficult question than just how do we care for people with schizophrenia? So I think that, because there's lots of agencies that can do that, like, I think the, ta the church's task when it comes to disability, mental health, whatever it is, is asking that vocational question. Likewise for dementia, what does it mean to be 92 years old, to have some brain damage, but still to have a vocation and a calling from God? It's so interesting to hear you put it that way, because I think a lot of people, their natural way of thinking about that is, the person with schizophrenia, until they are cured, healed, made better, they can't be used by God. They can't sort of be where they're supposed to be. But you're saying, no, it's it sometimes, it, well, God is using people who have schizophrenia. God is calling them to be disciples. What's, what's the shift that's needed there in, in Christian thinking if, if a lot of people are thinking, but, but surely we need, you know, didn't Jesus heal the person who had the mental health issue? And that was their gateway into then a full flourishing Christian life. You're saying it's not necessarily that way of looking at things. No, I don't think it is. And that, that, that's, that's why I, I use the example of Paul's thorn in his flesh in my, in my talks. You know, Paul mm. says he prayed and wasn't healed. And the implication could be that Paul didn't have enough faith. But that's clearly not the case. <laughs> what happened was that, that God says, Paul, I want you in your weakness and your vulnerability. I want you where you are because that's the way that you will function best for what I have in mind for you. And so with something, just sticking with schizophrenia, something like schizophrenia where you, you're probably, well, actually many people do recover from schizophrenia. That's mm. one of the things that people mm. don't really mm. recognize. But for many people, uh, they're going to have to learn to live with that for the rest of their lives. So does that mean that somebody's just ill for the rest of their lives? Or is the possibility of health and vocation and calling still there? Uh, and I would go for the latter. I mm. think vocation is always there, even in the midst of the wildest storms. God is trying to get you to participate in the things that he's doing. What do you think is going on then in the gospel stories where we do see Jesus obviously doing something that, that brings about some kind of healing and wholeness to someone, whether it be a physical or psychological disability, whether it's a, a demonic possession or whatever it's being described as. Is, is there a, a place for a kind of, that kind of healing to happen before someone can go on in their Christian journey? Or do you see it as more 
I don't know, of a, of a whole in terms of what's, what's going on in those situations? I think that God can do what God wants to do. So if, if God chooses to, to heal someone, that, that, that's fine. But what I would say is that in relation to the, the miracles of Jesus, what we need to be careful of is um, not being so caught up with the healing that we forget what the meaning of the healing is. Because all of the healings point towards Jesus and tell us something about Jesus. It's, it's, it's never about, because anybody who's healed can go and be unhealed the next day. So it's, mm. it's, it's never about the temporary fixing and mending. It's always about who Jesus is. It's all about the signs and wonder and point beyond itself. So if somebody is, is healed, it's a wonderful gift for the community. Um, but it's not a place where we can begin to think, well, maybe I'm not healed, so therefore there's something wrong with mm. me. That's not the way that it functions. Uh, and I think um, what I've been trying to push this week is that a biblical view of health ties in with the, the, the biblical concept of, concept of shalom. Mm. So to be in shalom is to be, uh, the heart of shalom is justice, righteousness, right relationship with God. So to be healthy biblically is to be in right relationship with God, to be connected with Jesus. And so when you look at the, even the healing miracles in that context, then you can begin to see that. It's all to do with, you know, bringing about the kingdom of God, bringing about reconciliation with God. So the, the miracles themselves push us into mm. shalom. But we don't need to be healed to encounter shalom. We just need to be walking with Jesus, and even in the midst of the difficulties yeah. that we go through. And what, one thing I heard you say, I thought very helpfully, was about the way that often those miracles are as much about Jesus bringing someone back into community That's right. because they've been excluded because of their disability or whatever it may be. So it's, it's more that it's about doing that, that it's the outcome of that in That's terms right. of reconciling them to their, their religious and social community and so on. That's exactly right. And you, and you can see that in something like the woman with the discharge of blood, right? So she makes us way through the crowd and touches Jesus' robe and immediately this ailment that she had ceases. Jesus notices that power has gone out of him and uh, he looks around and finds her. Like, and they have this conversation and then at the end of that, uh, he says, go, your faith has healed you. And you think, but she's already been yeah, healed. Yeah, it just happened, surely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then you realize that she'd been cured. But the healing came when she began to realize who Jesus was. And then she was began to be reconnected with her community, reconnected with, with the, the, the rituals that would enable her to be part of that community, mm. reconnected with God and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's really, really helpful. I mean, looking at the wider culture and I'm sure this applies just as much to the church, but it feels like we're, we are living through something of a mental health crisis um, in the West at the moment, especially among young people. We, we seem to have skyrocketing sort of figures around anxiety and depression. Sadly, I understand that suicide among men is as high as it's ever been and so on. What, what do you think is behind this sudden surge that we've been seeing in the last couple of decades, John? I think that there's, a, there's a lot of reasons. Like, uh, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons is there's a kind of inherent meaninglessness within secular society. Now, <clears throat> let me, let me see, try out what that might look like. So if we think about the, uh, the way that the past 30 years have run, right, we've uh, had the financial crisis of 2007, right, so that deeply unsettling mm. that money doesn't do what it does. Then we have 
the uh, pandemic, where mm -hmm. we find ourselves isolated for a long, a long, long periods of time. Mm -hmm. And so we are persons in relationship. We're made in the image of a relational God, so therefore to be isolated for long periods of time is really, really difficult. But then you've also got the existential anxiety that you know it feels like everything's falling apart mm -hmm. across the globe. Some certainly things are going, going badly wrong. And now you have war in Ukraine and so on and so forth. And no story to explain any of that stuff. Like. So I think it's difficult for young people to, or for anybody to find meaning when they're, when they're, when they're, when they're struggling in that sense. Mm. Uh, add on to that the, the, the problems with, uh, you know, you can't, it's difficult to buy a house these days because right. you know, it's so expensive. The things that, uh, I was going to say you and I, but you're, you're a lot <laughs> younger than I, the things that some of us here would have aspired to are not available for yes. young people. So therefore, there's a sense of frustration. Where, where do you go to? What do you want? And then an underlying story of secularism that says, well, yeah, it's bad, but there's nothing I can do about it. So I think all of these things mm. uh, contribute to I, that I, I get the sense, too, and uh, that the, the loss of the Christian story in the West, the way that we've kind of forgotten that story that did once kind of give a binding narrative to people's exactly. lives, even at a sort of subliminal level, yep. as that's gone away and has been replaced, as you say, by a kind of more secular narrative of, well, there's no real story to be lived out there. You just yeah. got to kind of find your own truth. You've got to find your own story. You've yeah. got to... And it kind of almost, I sense, especially among young people, gives an almost intolerable burden upon them because suddenly they have to invent themselves. They have to kind of find their own story. And... And I think that's really difficult, especially in an age where you are constantly being compared to other people on social media. I think technology is another huge factor, along with all the others you've mentioned, uh, among a younger generation that, for me, is, is driving this kind of epidemic of, 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 of mental health crisis. Okay, we've outlined the problem. <laughs> what, what do you think the solution might be? Is there a solution, John, to, to what we're facing? Well, I think, well, is there a solution? Well, I hope there is a solution. Um, but one of, the, one of the underlying factors in all of that, and it, it's a social media-inspired mm. issue, is the, the question of presence. Right. So imagine a, a, four people sitting around a table, all on their own phones, right? So that they're, they're present in the same space, mm. but they're somewhere else. Like, they're not present somewhere else, but they're certainly not present there. Like. Mm. And so what you, ha what you have is, is a development of a culture where absence is the norm, where you individualism is the norm, but absence also becomes the norm. I think one of the solutions is to help people to understand the meaning of presence, the meaning of, of what it means to be really present with somebody and to have people that really want to be present mm. with you in this moment in that sense. So in other words, I think... It's not a solution, but I think one of the things that the church can offer is a community of presence mm. within which people really feel that they belong mm. into that. Because it's the real sense of uh, existential, existential lostness. Yeah. But creating communities of belonging, and the, the essence of a good community of belonging is that you're missed when you're not there. Yeah. So to belong, you have to be missed. And I think that, to me, is at least part of the dynamic that young people don't have. Nobody misses them in that sense. Yeah. Not, yeah. They, they may get lost, but nobody's looking for them. There's no prodigal son there, no, yeah. no prodigal son's father there. And I think it's an opportunity in that sense for the church to be, if you like, a prodigal community, or a community of belonging that looks for people and misses them when they're not there. And, and I do feel like in a world which is increasingly 
driving towards the sort of the digital space where, I don't know, we're all going to live these separate lives as avatars in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse or whatever, um, whether you think that's a good thing or a terrible thing. Um, the church, at least, hopefully will continue to be a place of physical presence. You know, Jesus' incarnation was a physical presence. And it feels like we should never lose that. And that, that ultimately, you, you can never replace that on a Facebook or Twitter account. It, it, it needs to be that. So, so do you think that might be the future for churches, to kind of be a, a place where people can still find what is increasingly lacking in our, in our wider culture? I do think that. And I think that's fundamentally important, that we should model something countercultural in that way. However, <clears throat> there is a slight addendum to that. One of the things that I noticed with Zoom Church during the pandemic mm. is that uh, nobody really liked it. And so we, it was something we put up with. It was something yeah. we put up with, exactly. And so as soon as it was possible, we all Zoomed back to non-Zoom church, if you see mm. what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we thought, that's great, we're going back to real church. However, when I've had conversations with people who live with dementia and people who live with autism, actually Zoom church was a really good place for right. some people like, mm -hmm. because there mm -hmm. were no distractions. Yep. Like, you didn't have the congregational hugger. <laughs> <laughs> so, right? so, you know, you know, there's no smells. You, don't, you, yeah. you, can, you can put better on. And so the, a concern I have is that we've all rushed back to real church uh, and forgotten that for some people, Zoom Church was actually more was inclusive. Real yeah, exactly. Yeah, and for that's some people, it's the first time they've really yeah. felt included. I, I think that's really interesting, and that's been our experience in our local church actually. That we've obviously wanted to encourage people back in person. We, you can't, you know, there's so much you can't get through just turning up online. But at the same time, we've also recognised we are now serving far better than we used to. People who are housebound, people who are perhaps for very valid reasons can't come to church, or as you said, for other reasons, just find it easier to engage in that place for all kinds of reasons. So, so it's, it's worth being really aware of that, yeah. yeah. Um, look, I, I think we should open this up to our wonderful audience here. Um, so uh, we are just gonna do this really ad hoc. If you've got a question, feel free to put your hand up. I'm gonna surrender one of our microphones to Pam here, and, and, and then I'm just gonna let John sort of answer, and if I, need to say something, I'll just grab the mic off you, John. But, um, oh, and thank you for the water as well, Pam. Thank you. So I'm going to give this to Pam. And uh, if you've got a question, please put your hand up. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. Um, hello. So you talk about sort of inclusivity in the church and making sure that everyone can engage in a way that's helpful and good for them. At the moment, with a lot of young people, there's a sort of worrying confusion of this gender ideology, which obviously goes totally against Genesis and the Bible. And maybe that means they sort of tend to withdraw from church. I was just wondering if you had any ideas on how the church could be useful in a gentle and non-sort of harmful way in helping young people with this whole ideology. And well, it's funny, Justin and I had a, a, a session on uh, whenever it was, was it Tuesday? A long time ago. Tuesday, about how Christians can uh, disagree faithfully. And, it, and that's, that's a good issue because it's a, one that people feel very strongly about on both sides. It's controversial, it's difficult, it's, it's theologically really problematic. But my sense would be the way forward is to have civilised, faithful conversations. 
to sit down and talk about uh, what, 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 what the issues are, what you may or may not have in common, and to open up the space for friendship and then see what comes out of that. Because otherwise, you just end up with animosity and two sides saying the opposite of what the other side says. So beginning to have some constructive and creative dialogue in there uh, is, a, is a beginning point for understanding and maybe a beginning point for, the, for healing. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective, balanced, relevant. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church, wherever you live, however you worship. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. Thank you. Mental health is currently divided very much into community and institution. And the, the church's involvement in the community part, should we be busing people to, to church or should we spend more of our resources finding our way as churches into institutions to help? And um, could you kind of expand a little bit on that? Well, yes, I can. I, mean, I think both would be my, my, my answer to that question. I think um, one of the most profound uh, things that uh, the church can do is visit people. And that sounds very simplistic, but actually that's what people need. To, just to have the physical presence of the church reaching beyond the parameters of its own building into the institution in that sense. So I think that's very, very important. And that, that way you've got an extended, extension of the body of Christ that really covers you no matter where you are. Um, but one of the big problems for people uh, is transport. To get from A to B is found difficult. Local councils don't have the finances or, or the ability to do that. And one of the big contributions that the church could make is to enable to provide transport for people to get from their homes or wherever they are to church and back or to Bible study and back. Very simple things that could have a profound uh, impact because you're connecting people. You're, you're making sure that they're connected either through your visiting or through, through your care and through creating these transport links that enable people to get to, to the places of worship. Thanks. Um, I think it was Wednesday you gave a wonderful analogy that you could be holding up the football cup and you're the you know, mo most healthiest person in the world, but you can be unhealthy and someone on their deathbed can have shalom. Uh, in our church, we like to pray for the sick. And uh, I think you also said that it doesn't necessarily, that when we do feel sick, we want to have a cure. I, I was touched by the fact that shalom probably means more. It does mean more than instant healing. I would like to begin to probably change that culture in church. I don't know where to start. How, how we can start thinking about shalom when we pray for each other. So if I say, oh, I've got a back or I'm going to the hospital for, for something, can you pray for me? We do think about healing, but what's the, what, what could be the stages or criteria? To, I know there's a lot of teaching in that, and I think we're going to have to research that and really think deeply about it. But how can we begin to migrate to pray for shalom as being more important than the healing that you've just come up for? That's good, good question. And I guess to some extent it depends what your tradition is. So for some people, some traditions, healing is very central. Healing as curing is very central. For others, others it's not really. But I think the reorientation comes from the fact that uh, 
remember, what Shalom does, or the idea of Shalom does, it, it reminds us that it's always about Jesus. It's always about our connection with Jesus. Yes, God can heal. Yes, God may well cure you of certain things. Or God may well not cure you of certain things. That's the empirical reality of, of most of our lives. Um, but even when God does cure, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit, but it's important. Even when God does cure, it's always about pointing towards God. It's, it's never about pointing towards you. Either It's always about pointing towards God. So they, if we can begin to incorporate the idea of shalom into the way that we understand our prayers, we understand our spiritual formation, we understand what it means to pray for somebody to be in right relationship with God, uh, even though we're tr maybe praying about something physical or psychological, it's always about get, being in right relationship with God. Then we can maybe begin to shift our, our understanding of what the intention of sh uh, shalom, like shalomic prayer, I don't know if that's such a word, but there should be. The intention is, right? so just shifting your focus a little bit. Now, obviously, people will resist that because sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's a new, it may be a new idea for some people. It may be that people think it's not the right thing. But there's something really, really important about reorienting ourselves towards Jesus in every situation. You spoke this morning about how education almost educates spirituality out of people. How do you think education should change so that faith is more holistic and not just one of the other topics on the curriculum? Well, I think it's, 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 not really, it's not simply religion that, that, that does it. It's, it's the emphasis on a certain way of a certain understanding of truth. So I think what edu education and educators can do is to recognize that things like ethics, morality, art, poetry, are ways of coming to know the world, right? So science is a way of coming to know the world, knowing facts and understanding of the world, but so is poetry. You know, you can understand and come to grips with the aspects of creation through poetry that you simply can't through prose. Uh, so people need to be, you know, children need to understand that these things are important. Uh, alongside the other things. It's not like science is not important, it's not like maths is not important, I don't mean that at all. But the problem is that you end up with a, a lopsided view of what a human being is. Because for most of us, it's that poetic dimension, that emotional dimension, that actually makes life worthwhile. That's, that's when, if, somebody, you know, if somebody says to you, what's the essence of being a human being? You don't say mathematics, normally. Actually, my, my nephew, but, but that's okay. Uh, I actually know a few people that would say that. My son would say that, but he'd say that as the meaning of life. Um, but he's a mathematician, so he would. So I think reorienting ourselves to a, a, a more holistic understanding of what a human being is and giving space for those things, which culturally may not be as, value, as, as, value, as valued as the other things, but actually in terms of making us better human beings are fundamentally important. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for this week. It's been such a help for me. Um, I have a sister with schizophrenia, and we've been looking after her for nearly 50 years now. So we've come a long, long way. And she loves the Lord Jesus. And it's been quite interesting to stand back and find out where God is <laughs> through all the trauma and everything. One of the hardest things that I found to deal with, with the church, people with very good intentions um, were trying to rid her of demons and things like that. And someone who's so fragile, it's almost the final step for almost a suicide attempt. And people mean well, 
but I found it quite traumatic trying to cope with that as well as everything else, if you know what I mean. And we still plod on, and she's, she's quite stable again at the moment. But um, I've just wondered, what can we do about this? Because it, it's still a worrying part of my life. <laughs> Well, that, you, you and your sister are not alone because that's a very common thing to happen. But this is, this is the way I, I would think about it. Right? So if you look at the accounts of the demonic in the Gospels, there's a number of things you see. One, most of them are physical. And rarely, some people might, but rarely we would say that your physical affliction is caused by the demonic. It's something about our mental affliction. Why is that? Because we're a society that prioritizes intellect over everything else. Like, you know, as soon as you meet somebody, you'll ask them a question like, what do you do? And they'll tell you, and then they'll put you in a hierarchy. If you're a brain surgeon, you're up here. If you're a theologian, you're somewhere down here. Like, <laughs> And so the fact that you get something wrong with your mind, automatic. So, but the, but the accounts of the demonic in the in the, the uh, in the gospels simply don't look like schizophrenia. You know, if you if you look at the, the diagnostic and the, the, the diagnostic uh, and statistical manual for mental disorders, which is the the, uh, the psychiatrist bible for making definitions, really, at least in America. Um, if you place the experiences of schizophrenia are laid out there in a formal diagnosis of schizophrenia and place them against the accounts in the gospel, they're not the same thing. And so people shouldn't do that. But what people tend to do is when they're afraid of something that's different, they go for the, the, the kind of easiest option, which is to try to explain it. So they use the theology to try to explain it, which is really damaging. But they're simply wrong. We've seen the influence, really, of your earlier career as a mental health nurse come through in the way that you live life as a Christian, as a theologian. Um, as, as somebody who started as a male nurse as well, but in critical care, I just wondered whether that would have changed your perspective if you were in another speciality rather than mental health. Um, but this whole cure versus healing is, is something that I think really needs to be explored by contemporary evangelical churches. Because as somebody who worked in casualty, for example, or coronary care, I could fix somebody, but they would just return back to their normal way of life, and they'd need fixing again. So this whole concept of shalom, I think, is something which has really blessed me. I said to somebody, it's... John's challenged my own sense of theology, and I think it's really important for contemporary church to understand that, because healing and God in the detail of what he does in bringing you back into a living relationship with him is the absolute, isn't it? Yeah, can I speak to that? You may. Oh, well, no, you, you, you go ahead. Oh, can I speak to it? Yes. <laughs> I, I appreciated you coming out there. Is, uh, so your, your background is also in nursing, but obviously more in clinical care. Um, I, I think the, the question for me was, yeah, does this apply across the board, I suppose, John, as far as you're concerned? Obviously, your speciality has been mental health and so on. Do you think this, this new way of understanding cure versus healing needs to be kind of applied more generally in medical practice? I think so, yes. I mean, I think it, 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 it applies, obviously, within a religious and theological context. It's, it's very important to think through what contribution uh, the church 
brings that's unique to the conversation. Part of it is that. Like, but I think also, yeah, beginning to think about issues around... Well, let me give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, asked to do a piece of research for Aberdeen City Council, looking at dementia services in the city. Uh, and the idea was for me to come up with uh, innovative kind of ideas around dementia care, which I did. It was a really interesting uh, experience putting it all together. I think it's probably still sitting on a shelf somewhere in Aberdeen City Council, but there you go. But one of the things that I noticed there was that the way in which a number of care organisations commissioned their uh, services, i.e. gave money for, for them from the government, was on the basis of quality of care, right? Quality of life is optional. So you have to keep people safe and clean and, and well-fed, etc. Nothing wrong with that, obviously. But when it comes to issues of relationships or spirituality or anything like that, it's optional in that sense. Uh, and the, the assumption is that you can care without having quality, you have quality care without quality of life. Uh, and there's a danger that within health and social care that you have that same thing. You can pr produce fantastic care, but these other dimensions get lost in there. Like, which is one of the reasons why there's been such an emphasis on spirituality and healthcare over the past few years. Um, because it would try to remind people that there are more to human beings than just getting, fixing the mending and, and getting people better in that sense. So the answer to the question is, yeah, I think that dynamic, however you, however you, however you might articulate it in a secular context, is actually very important for medicine. Hi, my, my name is Susan. I also have worked in the NHS within mental health for 20 years or so. Um, I've only met, come across John today, um, the morning Bible teaching, which um, I've found just remarkably resonant for where I'm coming from. And... I think this is a major, major issue, an opportunity for the church, which I think actually the church is quite blind to at the moment. Um, you know, there's so much going on about re what we're doing in our church, about reimagining church. But we also have a group of adults with mild learning disabilities in our church. And what I've learnt at this conference over these past, past few days is to tip this on our head and those adults um, with mild learning disabilities should be at the very core and central of what we're doing at church and we're blind to it. And um, there have been, probably other people here will have tried to have come to the sessions by Kate Middleton on anxiety and I stood way back and took a photograph of the people outside straining to hear because it was so completely packed and again when she talked this morning it was completely packed out it's absolutely there for us to see it's in front of our eyes that the issues around people's mental health learning disability severe mental illness personality disorder um, are, 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 are within our churches and we have the capacity to um, deliver something real and I have to say I mean I think 
John should be on the parliamentary group, which advises the government, I'm being completely serious, you need to be on the parliamentary group, which advises the government on matters around mental health and mental disorder. It's no good being up in Aberdeen in a university. <laughs> it's, it's just not going to work. You know, there's very... I can say, having experience in mental health, this type of voice is rare, seriously rare. And um, I, I, I just thank you. Yes, there, there is the Scottish Parliament, that's true. They, but just to encapsulate that, John, I suppose, how do we, you know, to, to use the theme we've been using at Spring Harvest, how do we flip this? How do we make this a priority in our churches rather than just a side issue? Um, what, what do we do to really take seriously the opportunity that exists here for the church to make a huge difference on the ground in ways that the medical services simply can't? They're not set up for this kind of community-driven way of caring and creating friendship groups for, for people? Yeah, well, I don't know the answer to that question, but what I would say was that Spring Harvest have made a huge statement by putting these things center stage this, oh, this week. Because normally what happens is you, you, you'll have a, a, a minority thing for people who are interested in these kinds of things. But across the board, Spring Harvest has put that on the, on the center. Uh, and that, I think that's a fantastic statement, Lev. And so I guess the beginning point is now it's been centralized for everybody that's been here, what, 6,000 people or whatever it is, like, then it's up to the people that are here to begin to go back to their congregations and begin to think about what that looks like in their particular context. So I think, in principle, you know, this, these few days could be a catalyst for something really uh, special and, and, hope, and hopeful. Great. Um, we've still got a few few more minutes, so so I'll I'll get Pam to keep keep circulating the microphone. Why don't we go to this lady just down at the front, and then there's another lady further back. Thank you. And without wanting to seem negative at all, because I totally support everything you're saying, but going on what this lady is saying about reimagining church, I think it is really important that we start looking at a church in a different way somehow, because certainly for our church, which is a very sort of traditional, conventional um, church with very traditional services, it's very hard for somebody with, with a mental health issue to come into that church. We have young one, one young man who comes intermittently, He's, he's a very troubled young man. He comes from a different area. We're a coastal town, so if he happens to come to the coast on the bus, he comes to our church. The reality of it is that it is a very difficult morning when he's there. Our elderly ladies are afraid of him. He can be very challenging. He can be very threatening. He can be very loud, unexpectedly. So it gives people a shock. He can walk up to the altar in the middle of, you know, some sort of uh, ceremony or, you know, and um, his presence can be difficult. And although we really, you know, want him to be there, want to be welcoming, it's very hard somehow to find a way of doing that, that he can respond to and accept. Um, and sometimes he can say things after the service that make you feel like he's deeply troubled and it can be very worrying because you don't know how to respond and because he comes out of area it's not even that we can sort of um, make connections with anything outside of the church because he obviously is known to a mental health team he obviously has a so mental health social worker 
but they're not in our area. We don't know their names. We can't get hold of anybody. And I don't know where we would stand as well, you know, in terms of confidentiality. We don't know sort of in terms of things like, for example, if there's a celebration at church and there might be some wine afterwards or something like that. At one point, somebody said to him, you know, I don't think you should be having wine. Well, you know, we don't know that, do we? Do you know what I mean? We don't know whether you should be having a glass of wine or not or anything like that because we have no access to anything about him. We don't want him to be harmed in any way. And equally, we don't want him to harm anybody else and it's you know so far nothing terrible has happened but it is a challenge it's not easy and it's looking at how do we actually make it easier and it's yeah if we could go into sort of um mental health institutions create links get to know people understand what we should be doing in the community for the right level at the right level but it's a much bigger picture than the sort of traditional church services that we used to. And I think we have to start looking bigger if we want to incorporate those things in. So it's just, yeah, to say that. No, it's really, that's really good. There's, there's two things I say to that. One, <clears throat> um, one thing that uh, some colleagues that many years ago put together, I mean, I obviously can't speak to your situation because I, I don't know what it is, but um, what they were doing was... Um, uh, they recognized that at certain points there were people within their congregation that they weren't able to cope with, right? And so they created what was called a, a modification of a thing called a bailant group, which doesn't, doesn't matter what that is. But what they, what they did was they brought together regularly psycho, psycho, psychologists, the minister, pastoral carer, to discuss particular difficult, difficult situations. Uh, and so when something like that came up, they would get together with people with different forms of knowledge and discuss the issue and then work out what the best pastoral strategy might be. Um, now, there's no formal network for doing that, but it may be possible informally to, to set up that situa a, a group for, for situations like that, for positive things as well as difficult situations like that. So that's one way in which, we, uh, in the grander scheme of things, it might be possible for, for congregations to deal with uh, tricky situations. Um, but also there's, there's a lot of really, but uh, I think uh, anticipating, or, or a better way of putting it, creating a, a, a mental health friendly community means uh, dealing with issues before they arise. So there are some good training materials around. So I work with an organization called Sanctuary Ministries, and they produce um, materials that bring together psychology, psychiatry, and, and, and theology aimed at local congregations. So it runs over a number of weeks, and you gather together and, and discuss various things. Um, uh, and that's, that, that way you're beginning to create a culture that's, mentally, that's friendly toward and, and informed in mental health issues so that when issues arise, it's not simply that you're dealing with a crisis. You're dealing with, it's a crisis, but you're dealing with a crisis within a context where people have begun to understand already. So both of these suggestions might be helpful. Hello. Um, so in my last church, we had a um, young man, he was a lovely young man, but he, he was clearly vulnerable and he clearly had some, had some difficulties. Uh, and he wanted to join our leadership team and he wanted to help out with the youth work and things like that. And there, there was a conversation about whether it was appropriate for him to be part of the leadership team and uh, wh uh, whether that would be uh, helpful or not. And I wonder if you had some thoughts at all on, like, how, how do we draw, distinguish that line? Because clearly he had some... Had, had, 
he was very vulnerable himself and uh, it was difficult to know whether or not it would have been appropriate or not. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, you, you wouldn't normally put somebody in a position of leadership that wasn't able to do the job. It wasn't, that wasn't their particular calling, right? So I, I imagine in that situation, you'd work out what the gifts that this gentleman brings to the congregation. If the leadership gifts, then that's great, then you, you have to decide whether you want him as a, as a person or not. Um, if they're not, then they're not. But there may well be other things that he is able to do. So it's discerning his vocation would be the, the, the way to go through that. So there's no inherent reason why he couldn't do that if, if actually he had, uh, was gifted in that particular way. We probably will leave it there because we're, we're already just past uh, five o'clock. But uh, it's been fantastic hearing all these variety of questions, very practical questions, as well as the theology and everything else uh, coming for John. Uh, and would you join me in giving him a round of applause for <laughs> answering them? And, and I know a lot of the questions have obviously come off the back of all the wonderful teaching you've been doing this week, John. So thank you again for, for all that you've poured into people's lives this, this past week. It's been great to get to know you a little myself as well. Um, if you want to listen back to this interview, it will be airing in the next few weeks on Premier Christian Radio's The Profile show. So that you can catch that on at 8 o'clock on a Saturday evening or on The Profile podcast. Look out for it there. But for now, thank you very much for coming and have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.